passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. those of you who are new, my name is Kurt and I'm one of the pastors here and we're going to be beginning a study this morning in the book of Jude. So I'd like to ask you to get out your outlines, prepare to take some notes. If you're a regular here at Crosswinds, you know that the originally the plan was that when we finished our uh, outdoor worship service last week, we were going to begin studying the book of 1 Samuel today. But as Pastor Jordan on the Spencer campus and I were talking about that and thinking about that, he said, why don't we just start 1 Samuel after the Clay County Fair, because why it's a good timing for us, it's not a good timing for our Spencer campus, because they are so busy with that fair right now. So we thought, what can we do to get us past the fair? Maybe there's a short book of the Bible we should study together, and we talked about it, and, and we came up with the idea of the book of Jude. And it's really a short book. It's a, it's a small book. I mean, it doesn't even have a chapter in it. It just has 24 verses. And as we began to study the book of Jude, we felt this was an especially relevant book for where we are in our culture right now. The book of Jude is all about speaking, defending, and abiding by the truth. Now, we live in a culture where truth is in major short supply. Isn't that right? It's hard to find the truth nowadays. In fact, you go to the major news outlets, they don't give you the, the truth about the news anymore. They give you a political spin job about the news. And you know it. It's just so obvious. You have a question about something. You go to the internet. You Google your question. And you know the result you get is what Google wants you to see, not a legitimate answer to your question. Maybe that legitimate answer is found, but it's like 12 pages down. Because it's so hard to find the truth today. I mean, think about this from this past year, when we had the, the whole election process. Truth was so hard to find at that point. Remember Hunter Biden's laptop? That all of a sudden, information came out, and what did Twitter do? deplatform that, lock the, lock the account so nobody could get the truth. Remember COVID? It, uh, the idea that it came out of a lab in China began to circulate. Then we were told, oh, no, it didn't. No, it, it came from an animal market. Now they say without a shadow of a doubt, it was human-engineered, human-manufactured from a lab in China. But at the time, it was really hard to find the truth because people were twisting and distorting the truth. Well, in our world, it's very hard to find the truth. Here at Crosswinds Church, we are committed that when you walk in the doors, you will hear the truth. In fact, it's one of the reasons we keep our finger in the text. John chapter 17, verse 17 says that God's word is the truth, which is why we teach from this book. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is why we speak about Jesus and we teach from this book. So in a world where it's very hard to find the truth, game plan is you come into these walls, you come into 
Crosswinds Church, and you hear the truth, not just any truth, but the most important truth in the world, the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's the way it's supposed to be. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says the church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth in the world. And it's a sad day when you walk into a church and you can't hear the truth because that's to be the one place where truth is found. Since the church is to be about the truth, Satan and his minions are working very hard to try and destroy the church and the truth that is found in the church. In fact, one of Satan's most effective weapons against the church and the truth that is found in it is people who are inside the church who claim to be Christians but actually are not Christians. They're leading other Christians astray and they're inside the church so you start to believe them. Now in war, you know, what happens, you call those people spies. You call them traitors. In the church world, we call them apostates. People who claim to be on the side of Jesus, but are actually against Jesus. Now, um, yet on Friday, and I say yesterday, it's already Sunday, isn't it? Uh, on Friday, we took my daughter up to college, dropped her off, and so we are officially now empty nesters. All the kids are out of the house, but before we decided on what college she would go to, we began, at least I began to interview the different professors of the colleges, because after having sent two other children to Christian colleges, what I learned is just because you go to a Christian college does not necessarily mean they're going to be taught by Christian professors. For some reason, you can get these apostate professors, non-Christian professors, actually in Christian schools. And you guys are giving me a bunch of nods and like you've experienced this. It's like I have, yeah. Now, this is not a school that Deanna sought to go to or applied to, but it's a great example about how this takes place. You go to um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. There's a professor there called Bart Ehrman. He looked like he was going to be a great, solid, conservative Christian when they hired him. Graduated from Moody Bible College. Also graduated from Wheaton College. Really, straight up and down. He was hired, and he slowly shifted from being a conservative Christian to a liberal Christian. Then 15 years later, after he was officially tenured so they couldn't fire him, he came out as an atheist. So we have an atheist Bible professor teaching children about the Bible. I shouldn't say children, young adults, excuse me. Young adults about what to believe about the Scriptures. What do you think that's doing to young adults' faith? Destroying it. He's an apostate. He is somebody that is inside the church world who is actually fighting against the truth of Jesus Christ. He should be outside the church world, but they can't quite get rid of him because he's a tenured professor. The book of Jude that we are going to begin to study this morning is all about this situation. It's about how we as Christians are to deal with apostate Christians in the church. Those who are false teachers who are inside leading people astray. So if you're taking, your, uh, taking notes, point one is simply this. Jude is about preserving the truth 
when false Christians inside the church try to destroy the truth. That's the purpose of this book. And you can see this right at the beginning of the book. For instance, in verse 4, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. They've crept in unnoticed, perverting God's grace. Verse 3, right before that, gives a little bit more background. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who are now undermining and perverting the very grace of God. This is why Pastor Jordan and I, as we discussed this series, we gave the book of Jude a subtitle. You'll see in the graphics, it's Preserve the Truth. That's what this book is about, and that's what it's going to teach us to do. Second point of introduction. Jude comes before Revelation for a reason. In the Bible, Jesus taught us the truth. Paul also taught us the truth. James taught us the truth. Jude jumps in right before the book of Revelation and says, by the way, it's going to be a real fight to preserve the truth. All the way until the end, you're going to have to battle for this truth. The book of Acts, it describes the teaching of the apostles. The book of Jude is the only book in the Bible completely dedicated to the teachings of the apostates. Not the apostles, those who have gone wrong. The book of Revelation describes how Jesus will bring this world to an end. The book of Jude, which we're going to study right in front of Revelation, describes the battle for the truth that will continue all the way until the end. Jude, by the way, is also closely connected to 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter was written shortly before Jude. Second Peter says, by the way, be prepared, false teachers will be coming into the church. Expect to see them trying to lead people astray from inside. You can see that in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Well, Second Peter says the false teachers will be coming. Jude says, guess what? They're now here. Written one right after the other. Now, who are the false teachers today? Because they sort of began in Jude's day and they've continued to today. Many of these false teachers who are inside the church system, who are leading people astray, are often called liberal theologians. There's a whole bunch of them out there. You, you, you check out their pictures. They usually dress in clerical look, collars and white collars and black shirts and try to look real official, have white hair, this jeans and this kind of stuff doesn't fly for them. They want to look really good, really pious, but they're completely against God's Word. I'll give you an example of one professor I ran across when I was sort of doing some checking on schools for my daughter. 
one professor, he believes that the first half of the book of Genesis is not literally true. We're not just talking he's struggling with the days of creation, but the whole Noah thing, that's all myth, he says. Tower of Babel, oh, that's all myth and legend. But what do you do about the fact that Adam is mentioned as a historical figure in the New Testament? What do you do about the fact that Noah is mentioned as a literal historical figure in the New Testament? But that professor is teaching students at a Christian college, undermining their faith, telling them they do not need to have confidence in their Bible. And Jude says, you're apostate. You're trying to destroy the church from inside the system. Read my letter. You'll learn what to do with people like that. Point three. Jew was written just before the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. I told you Jew was written right before 2 Peter. 2 Peter was written around the year 68 A.D. And he says the false teachers are coming. But 2 Peter was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. That leaves us with Jude being written around 69 A.D right before the destruction of Jerusalem. Point four, Jude will teach us how to recognize false teachers. Interestingly, he doesn't teach us to recognize them by what they teach. He teaches us to recognize them by how they live. When I first was studying this book in preparation for the series, I said to myself, Jude, why don't you just tell us some of the specifics on how they're getting the doctrine of Jesus wrong and how they're undermining the faith? Why do you just tell us how they live and how you can recognize them? And then it occurred to me, you know how many ways there are to get something wrong? A lot of them. And if Jude wanted to say the way all the false teachers got Jesus wrong, his book would be titled 500 Ways to Get Jesus Wrong. It's 376 pages. Where he wrote a book that's only 24 verses, so it actually gets read. He says, rather than give you the details of what they're doing wrong, I'll give you the common thing they all have, which is their living is out of line. Because when you believe the wrong thing on the inside of your life, you will live the wrong way on the outside of your life. Think about that. Think about the teachers you know, false teachers, public teachers who have gone astray. Isn't that the way it worked? They messed up on the inside of what they believed, and shortly thereafter, they messed up on the outside of how they lived. Here's some of the ways these teachers were messing up on the outside. Jude, verse 4. They turn the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, they'll say, it doesn't matter how you live. Jesus always forgives. Go ahead and look at that porn. Jesus will forgive you. Go ahead and have that affair. Jesus will forgive you. Go ahead and have that premarital or sexual relationship. Jesus forgives you trying to cheapen the grace of God just so you can do whatever you want. Or another example. Jude verse 8 says, They disrespect authority and want no authority but themselves. This past week I was listening to a podcast about a megachurch pastor and it's an inside story about what happened when he went off the rails. And he's sort of one of those wipeout pastors today. And in the 
story, I found out what he did prior to going off the rails is he tried to change the bylaws of the church so he was no longer accountable to the elders of the church. He would be an authority only unto himself. And shortly thereafter, he ditched and revealed himself to be a false teacher. That's what Jude says. You want to find the false teachers? Look at the way they're living because it shows that what they're believing is actually messed up. All false teachers will have that in common. Now, let's begin in the text. I'm only going to cover two verses today, but there's some great stuff in these opening verses. It's this. Who is Jude? And he says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude is literally Judah, in Hebrew, it's Judas in, in Greek, which I find sort of interesting where you have a guy named Jude who's writing a book about how to prevent apostasy and handle apostasy in the church, but his personal name is the same name as the ultimate apostate in church history, which was Judas. Not the same guy, but same name. He describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't sound important. It sounds like a, a throwaway comment, but it's not a throwaway comment. It's extremely important because the word servant used here is specific. It's a bond servant of Jesus. That's a particular kind of slavery we see in the Old Testament. If there was a slave who loved his master, was grateful to his master. The master had treated them extremely well, and they realized there was no way they could ever live a better life than serving the master they served. What they could do is they could volunteer to become that master's slave for life. And it was publicly noted that they were serving their master willingly, joyfully, and gratefully. They were known as bond servants. We can read about this in Exodus. I'll show you. Exodus 21. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awe, and he shall be his slave forever. And that's how Jude describes his relationship to Jesus Christ. I am a bondservant of Jesus. Jesus is my master. He has been so good to me. I have given my life to serve him. It's a privilege to be a servant of Master Jesus. Now, folks, that shouldn't just be a description of Jude. If you're a Christian this morning, that should be a description of you and of me. We've joyfully given our lives to serve Jesus, our wonderful Master. You and I, are slaves with a pierced ear. And Jude doesn't just describe himself as a servant of Jesus, but he says Jude is also the brother of James. Now, who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. 
The Catholic Church will teach you that Mary, after she gave birth to Jesus, continued in perpetual virginity. But the Bible seems to teach something very different, that Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born. We find that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son, it says? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and, here's our friend, Judas or Jude? James and Jude are literally half-brothers of Jesus. James writes one book in your Bible called the book of James. Jude writes another book that's in our Bible that we're studying this morning called the book of Jude. Both half-brothers of Jesus. Jude refers to himself simply as the brother of James. And why would he do that? That's because James is majorly famous in the early church world. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he doesn't need to even give James' last name. Just say the name James and everybody knows who it is. It's sort of like having an older brother who's an NFL quarterback. All you need to do is say Brady and everybody knows who you're talking about, right? Or all you need to do is say Elway. And you know who you're talking about. And this is what Jude does. He says, and by the way, I'm the brother of James. You know him? That's who I'm talking about. Interestingly, James, as well as Jude, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was a nutcase. We can read about that in John chapter five or 7, verse 5. It says they did not believe in him, but something radically changed them. Can you guess what that would be? Shout it out. The resurrection. Exactly. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it specifically says that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James, his half-brother. And he's like, oh boy, I think I got that one wrong. And he changes direction major big time. And here's what I think is interesting. Jude could have uh, postured himself as saying, oh, by the way, I'm Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. You notice he doesn't do that? I am Jude the servant of Jesus. He's got the relationship right. He's filled with humility. The false teachers, you're going to see, as we get into this book, are always filled with pride, trying to platform themselves. True teachers are filled with humility, trying to humble themselves. And we see that with Jude. Um, Next thing we see is this. What do Christians need to remember in the battle to preserve the truth? And this is going to be exciting stuff, folks. This is what I call the gravitational center of our message this morning. Jude says this, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This triplet rolls off the tongue but it is very easy to miss the gravitational significance of what Jude is saying. Put yourself into the shoes of his listeners. You're in the early church. Things are falling apart in the early church because false teachers have crept into the church, leading people astray. People that were with you one Sunday are no longer with you the next Sunday. They're starting to deny Jesus, being pulled away by these false teachers. And folks are going, 
God, if you're in charge, why can't you protect your church? It's being torn apart. And God, if you're in charge, and Jude's going to write us a letter about the importance of us preserving the truth, fighting for the truth, contending for the truth. I mean, if you can't protect your church, will you be able to protect me? And Jude says, yes, he can, and he will, because you are called, loved, and kept in this battle. Understand that no matter what you face in the battle to preserve the truth, you are spiritually bulletproof. That gives you a lot of courage when the fighting starts, doesn't it? That you'll never be a casualty of the war? Let me show you what I mean. It says, we were called by God. When the Bible talks about calling, it talks about God's calling in two different ways. The first is this. The general call of God is the offer of salvation, and it's extended to everyone. This is simply when someone shares with you, whether it's me or you sharing with your friends, the fact that all of us are sinful by nature and by choice. All of us are dead in our sin, stuck in our sin, can't get away from our sin. But God loves us. He sent His Son to die for our sin. And when we trust in Jesus Christ to forgive our sin, we are literally born again, made into a new creation and adopted into God's family. That's the general call of God. It's offered to everyone. Isaiah 45 verse 22 tells us this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now this general call of God, which is extended to everyone, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, will always have one of two reactions when it's heard. Not really a middle road. The first reaction is people hear about the fact that they are sinners, that they are alienated from God, separated from Him, and the only way to be saved is to humble themselves and realize they can't do anything but trust in Jesus. And they're repulsed by that. They're insulted by that. They hate that. To them, Paul says, it's an odor of death. It smells like a dead body to them. It's completely repulsive. And you've seen people like that. But he says for other people, when they hear this good news of God's salvation, it's like a sweet-smelling aroma. They are, they are drawn to it. They say, yes, this is the truth I've been looking for. And they trust in Jesus. They are saved and, and they are born again. There's always these one of two reactions, either repulsed by the gospel or drawn to the gospel. That's one of the ways that the Bible talks about the call of God. That's the general call of God. But in this opening verse, that's not the way that Jude uses that term. He uses it differently. He's speaking about what's called the efficacious call of God. And the efficacious call of God is only for those chosen by God. The general call of God is extended to everyone. The efficacious call of God is not extended to everyone. It's God in His supernatural wisdom and will 
chooses beforehand in eternity past to work inside some people and call them to himself. So when they hear the general call of God, rather than it being stench of death and repulsive to them, it's attractive to them. They are drawn to it and they are saved by it. In fact, the only way anyone is not repulsed by the general call of God is if in eternity past, God has chosen them to respond to his efficacious call. Sometimes this is called the doctrine of election. Now let me, I know some of you struggle with that, but let me go ahead and show you some verses in Scripture. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, it reads this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul says to the Thessalonians, the reason you are saved is because God chose you in eternity past. Now, you may say, why did God choose some people? Romans chapter 8 tells us the reason. It says his plan for choosing some people is that he would conform them to the image of his Son. His big picture plan is that those who are chosen would become like Jesus. And then the other question that's in your mind is this. Well, why did God choose some in eternity past, but he didn't choose others in eternity past? And you know what the answer is? I don't know. Just being real honest with you. God only knows. But we see it taking place in Scripture, and not just in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9 refers back to the Old Testament and says, Remember Jacob and Esau? When they were still in their mother's womb, before they had been born, before they had done anything in this life, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why? I don't know. God called Jacob to himself, and God didn't call Esau to himself. They were brothers. They were in the same family. Yet God chose one, and he didn't choose the other. Why is Jude talking about the call of God? What does this have to do with this topic of preserving the truth and the battle for the truth? He says, in the battle for the truth, which sometimes is going to be hard, which sometimes you're going to feel like, I can't make it. You need to know that your salvation is never in question because God is the one who called you and chose you in eternity past. God is the one, so when you heard the gospel, you responded to the gospel and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. God is the one who all along has been changing you and making you into a new person. And when you die, God is the one who brings you home to glory. You do not bring yourself home to glory. God is the one who's done all this. And what God began in you, He will be faithful to complete in you. You have nothing to fear in this battle. You may take some hits, 
but you will not be a casualty. God will bring you home to heaven no matter what happens when you stand up and preserve the truth. Now, John chapter 6, verse 37, we see some of this election and how this works. It says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's the election side. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast, keep out. We see this also. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What he says is, when we sit there and say to God, why did you seem to choose some and you didn't choose others? I don't think that's fair. He says, you're just a, like a clay pot. We do not have any right to tell the potter what he wants to do with the clay. If you think there's a gap of understanding between a clay pot and the potter, folks, I got to tell you, there's a greater gap of understanding between us and God. So I cannot tell you why God has elected some, why he has chosen some, and he has not chosen others. All I can do is tell you that it's true, and because he's chosen us, he will never let us go. We're bulletproof in the battle. So we go into the battle without fear. Now this gets even more exciting. It says we're beloved by God the Father. Romans 5 verse 8 reinforces this. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, when we were called by God, it's not like we won some kind of random lottery in heaven and God's like, oh, that's nice. I hope you, good to know you won. <laughs> no. When God called us, he chose to love us while we were still sinners, filthy he loved us so much, he sent his only begotten son to die in your place for your sin. That is how much God loves you. Look at his good plans for you. Romans 8, 17. And if we're children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God loves you so much that you and I are adopted brothers and sisters of the second person of the Trinity. Children of God. Heirs of the universe co-heirs with Christ in all of eternity, Jesus, who created this universe, will reign and rule over the universe. And guess who will be reigning and ruling with him? You and I, higher than the angels themselves. That is how much God loves you. To put you together with his son, Jesus. Let that sink in. To drive this point home, look at John 17, 22 through 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And notice this. So that the world may know that you sent me, and circle this section, and loved them even as you loved me. You know how much God the Father loves you? He loves you with the same amount of love that he has for his only begotten son. Could anybody be loved more than you and I are loved by God the Father right now? I'll say it again. He loves you with the same amount of love as he loves for his own son. What is Jesus' prayer for us? John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Eternity, we are with Jesus, seeing his glory, with Jesus, experiencing his glory. Now, if God the Father loves you so much that he loves you with the same amount of love that he has for his own son, do you think in the battle for the truth, he's going to let anything happen to us? Do you think in the battle for the truth that we're going to be like the thousands of American citizens and soldiers that were left behind Afghanistan lines? Do you think that that's what God's going to do for us? you think he's going to abandon us? Forget about us? Absolutely not. He loves you so much that the salvation he began in you, he'll be faithful to complete in you. Folks, we're spiritually bulletproof in this battle. Guaranteed that we will be home in glory with Jesus at the end of the day, no matter what hits us. I like it the way it says it in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. One more thing he says. We also will be kept by Jesus. Now some of you will look at the footnote and see that it's going to be kept by Jesus or kept for Jesus. It could go either way. I personally think being kept by Jesus is a slightly better translation here. But what it means is not just are we chosen by God to be saved, not just are we loved by God the Father, but Jesus the Son will protect us and keep us and bring us home. John 10, 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish Notice this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, you are right here, and nobody is taking you out of my hand. You're protected and kept in the battle. Other parts of Scripture describe us as literally a love gift from God the Father to the Son. They always remind us of God the Father's love for the Son. Now you remember, what is a love gift? <clears throat> this is my wedding ring. It was given to me uh, by my wife on the day we were married. 
And it's her promise that she would keep herself from me and from me alone till death do us part. And this is a very precious love gift, so I have kept it on my finger and never taken it really off my finger. That's what we are, folks. We are a love gift from God the Father to the Son, kept in his hand, literally kept on his finger. And Jesus says, by the way, nobody is taking this out of my hand. Nothing is taking you out of his hand. He will protect you and keep you in the battle for the truth. Look at this in your outlines. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the calling, that's the election side. Then he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And notice this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are going to be guarded by God's power, ultimately to bring us to our last day where the salvation will be revealed. The full salvation that Jesus has achieved for us. So let me summarize this. The book of Jude, it's about a battle for the truth. It's about preserving the truth in a world that is filled with error, especially against people who have come into the church and are trying to lead Christians astray. And in this battle, which at times may be hard, Jude says you must understand, you do not need to be afraid. No matter what happens, you are spiritually bulletproof. Because God is the one who called you and chose you in eternity past. He chose to bring you together with his son, and he will get you together with his son. The salvation God began will be the salvation God completes. He didn't just choose to call you, but he loves you. He loves you as much as he loves his own son. His plans for you are that you would be the heir of the new creation with Jesus. Most blessed beings in the universe can't be any more loved than we actually are. We're not just called in love, but Jesus is going to keep us, protect us like a ring on his finger Nothing can snatch us out of his hand, no matter what battle we face. Well, how do we respond to this? There's only one proper response, folks. It's the same response that Jude had. To see himself as a bondservant of Jesus. Every single day, he says, after what God has done for me through Jesus... It's a joyful privilege to live to serve Jesus, to honor Jesus, to please Jesus. After all that God has done for me, it's just a natural and healthy response for me to live my life to serve Jesus. That's not just Jude's response, folks. That's our response. Because all of us are servants of Jesus with a pierced ear. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. 
and may God continue to enrich your life.